Well, the fact that we're running short of time interpreted means I preached too long the first session. Okay, <laughs> just remove any sense of mystery on what, what that meant, which also means I gave you two messages <laughs> this morning, so that's why we're a little, we're like a mummy pressed for time. So, uh, Selah, pause and meditate. Well, I hope you're enjoying uh, the conference. I hope you're enjoying fellowshipping with other believers. Um, I think there is something special about a conference when it's opened up and people from other churches come. It's healthy, spiritually healthy, for the deck the, the deck of cards to be reshuffled and for us to be together. And that's what's going to happen in heaven. And... Um, and so there are, there are some advantages to a conference where we get to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't normally, uh, we are not normally able to, to be with. So I hope that you'll take advantage uh, of that. And I do want to welcome all those who are not a regular part of this church family. You, you have honored us by your presence, and I'm very touched that some of you have come like from Melbourne and Brisbane and places like that, um, and I can only say I don't know that I would walk across the street to hear myself preach, so uh, <laughs> the whole Martin Lloyd-Jones line, um, so the fact that you've come from a distance is very um, humbling but encouraging, so thank you for investing uh, your time here. In this session, we want to look at the next I am statement. We will have one more this afternoon, and I'll just tell you the one this afternoon is the barn burner of all barn burners, okay? So if, if you had to pick just one, I would the way it's just worked, it's the Saturday afternoon. If I had any sense, I would save it for Sunday morning or have done it last night, but the way just I'm, I'm an obsessive perfectionist, and so I want to do this as it, in sequence as they come. But I preached it at Shepherd's Conference to about 5,000 people, and um, it, 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 it resonated very strongly with the pastors and missionaries um, that were there. So, but for this session, John chapter 10. Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to John chapter 10, and we come now to the third I am statement in the Gospel of John. We have seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life, John 6:35. We have seen him say, I am the light of the world, John 8:12. Now we come to the third I am statement. I am the door of the sheep. John chapter 10. We will look at verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Twice in this passage, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Once in verse 7 and once in verse 9. There are many famous doors in the world that I've had the privilege to see. Two and a half weeks ago, I was in Wittenberg, Germany, preaching in a conference, and I went again, as I've done before, to the Castle Church to look at the front door of the Castle Church, where an Augustinian monk who became a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 Theses to the front door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31, 1517, and it was the shot heard around the world. To stand there and look at that door is a remarkable thing, and I think later this summer I'll have the privilege to go into his pulpit and preach there. It's a very famous door. I have been to Florence, Italy, the birthplace of the Renaissance, there to the baptistry of Florence, which is across the way from the cathedral of Florence to that Catholic facility, and there hanging on a separate structure unto itself is the baptistry of Florence. And the two doors that hang there are known as the gates of paradise. There are ten biblical scenes that are on those doors as it's a walk through the Old Testament and it is gilded bronze that has been poured into a mold and it is like sculptures and statues on the door. It took 27 years to build the two doors. I've been to Edinburgh, Scotland, there at St. Andrew's Church on St. George's Street where in 1842 the renowned preacher Charles uh, Thomas Chalmers led a revolt of 400 ministers out the front door of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland because of biblical convictions. It's a very famous door. But the most famous door that I've ever walked through is this door, the door of the sheep. And even if you've not traveled the world and seen these other doors, <clears throat> you have experienced the door. And this is the only door that really matters. As we look at this, Jesus is revealing himself as the door. A door provides access into a desired location. A door can also keep out danger from entering into a place where you have gone into. And so Jesus now, with great forthrightness, 
reveals himself to us as the door of the sheep. There are six things that I want you to note in these verses. And the first is the crowd addressed. And verse 7 begins, So Jesus said to them again. So, who is them? To whom does he make this statement? The them goes back to chapter 9. The the them is found in chapter 9, verse 40. It is the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of Israel. They are the blind leaders of the blind. They are religious but lost. They have a head full of knowledge, but their hearts are empty. And in chapter 9 and verse 41, Jesus says that they are spiritually blind and cannot even see their own sin which is so blatantly obvious to anyone who knows them. There should be no division after chapter 9 in the beginning of chapter 10. This is one of those unfortunate chapter divisions that separates a father from a child, that separates the story from the discourse. And chapter 10 is the discourse that Jesus addresses to the religious leaders of Israel. The conflict between them has escalated to a fever pitch. And I want to take just a moment to walk you through this so that you will feel the tension that's in the air as Jesus says this. He he, he is not preaching to the choir. This isn't a small group Bible study where everybody's on board and Jesus is saying this and everyone's nodding their head yes. If you turn back with me to chapter 5 and verse 15, just to get a running start at this. In chapter 5 of John beginning in verse 16, for this reason, and the reason is that Jesus has healed a a lame man, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, when he refers to the Jews, he is not referring to the collective um, Jewish people. In John's Gospel, the Jews refer to the Jewish leaders. It refers to the hierarchy of the spiritual elite. And it was those who were in leadership who had the most to lose by the ministry of Jesus. They were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these, th- these things on the Sabbath. And then in verse 18, the, the match is struck and it is lit. And in verse 18 we read, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is serious. I've never preached where someone actually wanted to kill me. I've preached where KGB have shown up and I was told I would be arrested. But I knew I would be released. They were actually trying to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, someone has well said the problem with preachers today is no one wants to kill them anymore. I mean, we're not dangerous to anybody or anything. We're just head patters. 
ego massagers. In chapter 7 and verse 1, this fuse continues to, to burn. And in John 7 verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. That's big time conflict. I mean, you can't even walk through Judea because you'll be put to death. So he is having to outskirt that area and stay in Galilee knowing that he'll be put to death, from our perspective, prematurely. In verse 19... He says, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? In verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And in verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to seize him so that they could strangle him or crucify him or put him to death. In verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. In chapter 8 and verse 37... After Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. And then in verse 40, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. And then in verse 50, trying to read my own notes here. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, meaning to stone him to death. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This now leads into chapter 9, which is inseparably connected to chapter 10. So, as we read the beginning of verse 7, we, we, we see who Jesus is speaking to. We, we know who the them is. The them is who he addressed at the end of, 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 chapter, of chapter 9. The, the, them, the them is none other than the Pharisees that Jesus has said are spiritually blind, so blind they cannot even see their, their own sin. And so, Jesus is addressing... The religious hierarchy of the nation of of Israel, he is bold. He is straightforward. Uh, There there has never been a preacher as bold and as direct as the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man's man. There was no reverse gear in him. Uh, There was no speaking in ambiguities. Uh, There was no misunderstanding what he had to say. If there was a problem, it was not because he was misunderstood. The problem was because he was understood. That's the way a preacher needs to be. And so, if we're to follow Christ and be like Christ, then we must 
speak boldly and directly to this world also in love. But we have to be like Christ and address those who are in unbelief. So that's the crowd addressed. And there's a crowd for you to address as well. It may be with your own children. It may be with your in-laws. It may be with your friends. It may be with classmates. It may be with work associates. But we have to get out of the comfort zone and speak to the unbelievers. Second, not only the crowd addressed, but the claim announced. Notice what Jesus said. It's hard to imagine a more staggering claim that Jesus makes. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In some ways, they saw themselves as the door of the sheep. That they were the the watch guards for entrance into the kingdom of, of heaven. That they were those who who stood to usher people into the kingdom. And Jesus wants them to know that they are not the rite of passage into the kingdom of heaven, that He and He alone is the door of the sheep. And if they are to be saved, they must commit their life to Him and they must enter in through Him. As we look at this staggering claim, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Several things I want to draw to your attention. First of all, the priority of this claim. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly means amen, amen. Or if you're a Presbyterian, amen, amen. Whenever Jesus said something that was of utmost importance, he would introduce it by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Everything that Jesus said was true. But some things that Jesus said were far more important than other things that he had to say. And he would flag what was most important by introducing it with truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, you must pay attention to this. Your eternal soul is hanging upon what I have to say. It's like taking a yellow highlighter and with my notes, underscoring what should leap off of the page and grab me by the lapels as I look at my notes. If I say anything, say this. If you hear anything, hear this. This rises to the highest level of importance. And when he says, I say to you, he is so so direct. He is so emphatic. He is so dogmatic. In America, we would say he's bulldogmatic. He's so forceful. Truly, truly, I say to you, That's the priority of it. If you hear anything, hear this. Please note the deity of it. I am. Here it is again. I am. I am God. I am fully God. I am the all-sufficient, self-sufficient one in whom you must live and move and have your being, the one in whom there is 
salvation and salvation alone? I am. That's the deity of it. Note the exclusivity of it. I am the door. We have already belabored this point. He's not a door. There's not a front door, back door, side doors to get into the kingdom of heaven. There's only one door. It's front and center. It is this door. And this door is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. I am the door. He's not pointing to the door. He's pointing to Himself. I am the door. You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven except you come through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other entrance. I am the door of the sheep. Here again is the exclusivity of it. No goats, no goats enter in. Only His sheep. And these sheep are those who have been chosen by the Father and entrusted to Him before the foundation of the world. And it is these sheep that Jesus calls by name to come to Him individually, one at a time. This is the exclusivity of it. That it is only His sheep who will pass through this door. And the accessibility of this claim, I am the door of the sheep. It is this door, as I've already said, that provides the only point of access into the sheepfold, into the kingdom of heaven. And this is not the first time that Jesus has made a claim like this, that He is the door and you must enter through Him. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, enter through the narrow gate. For the way is wide and the gate is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who find it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Jesus has already represented Himself to the religious establishment of Israel as the sole and exclusive gate through which they and all others must enter to enter into the kingdom. This also implies, if you must enter through the gate, that you were born on the outside of the kingdom, and you must now enter into the kingdom. Despite the fact that they were circumcised uh, on the eighth day. Despite the fact that they were presented on the fortieth day for purification. Uh, despite the fact that they had been raised up under the Shema and the law. And hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one God. Except you be born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that to the teacher of, of Israel. And it is the same today. Everyone, when they are born into this world, are born outside the kingdom of heaven. That's why they have to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you were sprinkled as a baby or went through a confirmation class or walked an aisle, raised a hand, prayed a prayer, joined the church, whatever. Except you be born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So this is the claim announced. And Jesus announces this claim to you here today as this text is read yet again, as it has been read for the last 2,000 years, that He is the door of the sheep. 
And there is no other way to enter into the kingdom of heaven except you come through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to believe in a creator. It's not enough to believe that he has the whole world in his hand. It's not enough to believe the church creed or constitution or whatever. You must do business with Jesus. You must come to Jesus. You must become his follower. Third, look at the charlatans exposed. In verse 8, Jesus said, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's referring to the spiritual leaders of Israel. I mean, he's calling them out as thieves and robbers. Jesus was never one to mince words. Note the present tense. All who came before me are. They're standing right in front of him. Not were, once were, or will be. No, they are right now in the present. They're alive and in the commonwealth of Israel. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Can you imagine coming to church and the pastor and his sermon just calls you out as a thief and a robber? Can you imagine the jolt of such a rebuke? But that's what Jesus is doing here. Thieves refer to those who steal with deception, and robbers are those who steal with violence. It's two different ways to steal. A thief does it in the night with stealth. A robber does it with physical apprehension. And this refers to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the priests. They were those who stole glory from God. They were those who twisted and distorted the Scripture. And they used intimidation with the people. They were addressed earlier in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. That verse follows immediately after what he just said to the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9. They have come unlawfully and have broken into the nation of Israel. They have not come meeting the spiritual qualifications of one who would lead the people of God, and they certainly have not met the messianic qualifications, for Christ alone is one who has entered by the door. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, this is somewhat confusing. Let me explain. There are two sheepfolds in John chapter 10. In verses 1 through 6, it is the community sheepfold. In verses 7 through 18, it is the country sheepfold. The community sheepfold is in town. That's verses 1 through 6. And a shepherd would bring his flock every once in a while into the city so he can spend the night in the inn. And he would lead his flock into the community sheepfold where there are other flocks in the community sheepfold. 
and he will leave them there for the night. He will then go to the tavern or to the inn, spend the night, have a meal, sleep, and then come back for his sheep that are mixed in with the other community, uh, uh, with the other sheepfolds. He will call them by name. He will lead them out. He will take them back out to the countryside, and there he will build a sheepfold out in the countryside for just his own flock. That's verses 7 through 18. I'll talk more about that this afternoon. So when Jesus says in verse 2 that he's entered by the door, that means he has come lawfully meeting all the messianic requirements. When he says later in verse 7, I am the door, that's a totally different sheepfold for just his own sheep to enter in. And so with this, Jesus exposes the false leaders of Israel and he indicts them as being spiritual frauds, pseudo-shepherds, counterfeit leaders. And notice what he says in verse 8, but, and here again, praise God for the buts in the Bible, but the sheep do not hear them. The sheep here refer to those who belong to the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have belonged to Him from eternity past, having been entrusted to Him by the Father after the Father's election and predestination. It will be for these sheep that He will die. And it says, the sheep did not hear them. They turn a deaf ear to false leaders. Earlier in verse 5, it says, A stranger they simply will not follow. Do you see it in your Bible? They will flee from him. <laughs> they'll leave that church. They'll leave that group. They'll, they'll get out of Dodge. They'll get out of town. Uh, they will flee from him. They will run away from him. They're, they're not going to sit on the back pew and, and just because mom and dad are there. No, they're, they're getting out of there. Because they do not know the voice of strangers. The voice of Brigham Young is the voice of a stranger. The voice of Mohammed is the voice of a stranger. The voice of the Pope is a stranger. The voice of Joel Olstein is a stranger. The voice of all false prophets is a stranger. They will only hear one voice. And that is the voice of their shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Once a Scottish traveler was touring Jerusalem, and he saw a shepherd with a flock crossing the road. And he pulled over the car on the side of the road and went to the shepherd with his flock. And he said, let me change into your clothes and see what happens. So the shepherd said, okay, you can try. Put on his robe and put on his hat and called out to the sheep. And the sheep were totally deaf. 
to his voice. Because a stranger they will not hear. But in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. For my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no man shall pluck them from his hand. I and the Father are one. This inseparable connection and communion between the shepherd and his sheep. They're they're not going to show up in that church down the street that happens to be preaching a false gospel because they just won't hear what he has to say. And it's dangerous if that one does because it calls into question whether you're a sheep at all. Now notice in verse 9 the call extended. In verse 9, Jesus now extends this call, and interestingly enough, to the leaders of Israel. I am the door, which reiterates what he has already said in verse 7. I am God. I am the door, and the only door that leads into the kingdom. If anyone enters through me, this is yet another metaphor for saving faith. To this point, we have identified six metaphors for saving faith. Saving faith is to come to Christ, John 6.35. It is to believe in Christ, John 6.35. It is to eat of Christ, John 6. He who eats my, my, my body... And it is to drink Christ, he who drinks my blood. And the sixth, we haven't talked about, but is in John 1, verse 12, it is to receive Christ. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And now here is this seventh metaphor. For saving faith, it is to enter through the door. I want to say again, this implies that you began on the outside of this door and you now need to take a step of faith and enter through this door in order to enter into the sheepfold, to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not enough to admire the door. It's not enough to sing about the door. It's not enough to do word studies about the door. It's not enough to go to the Holy Land and see where the door was born. It's not enough to put your toes up to the door. It's not enough to see others go through the door. You yourself must take that decisive step of faith and come through the door. You have to leave where you are within your heart and come through and commit your life to Jesus Christ. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, 
And to enter through this door, it is a narrow gate. That means there is only, it is so narrow, you have to go through one at a time. You can't go through as a group. You can't go through as a class. Uh, You can't go through as a cabin. It's so narrow, there's only room for just you to enter through. And it is so narrow, you're going to have to leave your baggage behind. You're going to have to leave a life pursuit of sin behind in order to enter through this narrow gate. You can't have Jesus and have your sin at the same time. You and your sin must part ways if you are to have Christ. That does not mean that you would become perfectly sinless, and it does not mean that you have to clean up your life before you can come to Christ, because you can never clean up your life. Only Jesus can clean up your life. But it does mean you have to turn away from a life pursuit of sin if you are now to turn to Christ and begin a life pursuit of Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't straddle the fence. You can't have one foot in Christ and one foot in the world. You've got to turn to Christ and put both feet through the narrow gate. He says in Luke 13, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Agonizomai. Agonize. No one giggles through the narrow gate. No one skips through the narrow gate. No one struts or high steps through the narrow gate. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is the heart-rending of repentance, the heart-brokenness of my life has violated the holiness of God. I have been a rebel against my king, and being broken, not over what your sin has done to you, but broken over what your sin has done to God. If anyone enters through me, this means to believe in him. It means to trust in Him. It means to rely upon Him. It means to look to Him. And this call has been extended to you. And it is the open invitation, the free offer of the gospel to enter through this gate. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for you to deserve. Uh, There is nothing that you must merit You simply come as a guilty, hell-bound sinner and you commit your life to Jesus Christ. That is the call that is extended to everyone here today. And note fifth, the consequence promised. There's more to verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, now here is the result. Here is the consequence. He will be saved. The he is emphatic. He and he alone. He and he only. He and no one else. He will be. Note the certainty of this. Not he might be, could be, should be. He will be saved. I remember someone once asking me, saved, is that a Baptist word? (laughs) That's a Bible word. That's a Jesus word. That's a Paul word. 
Jesus says we'll be saved. R.C. Sproul has written a book entitled Saved from What? You ought to ask that question. I mean, if you're saved, what in the world have you been saved from? R.C. Sproul was talking about walking across campus as a freshman. He had just become a Christian. He, he, he told me he did not even know one Christian in the world, starting with his pastor. He did not know another Christian on planet Earth. And he's walking across campus in a kind of overly zealous believer came up to him and said, Brother, are you saved? And R.C. said yes, and it scared him to death, and he ran back to his dorm room and closed the door and sat on his bed and thought, I know I'm saved, but what does that mean? Saved from what? Let me tell you what we're not saved from and what we are actually are saved from. We're not saved from a bad job, an unruly boss. We're not saved from being single and I want to be married. We're not saved from unhappiness. We're not saved from loneliness or insecurity. We are saved from the wrath of God. And there's only one person who can save you from God. And that is God Himself. And it is the grace of God that must save you from the wrath of God. It is the Son of God who must save you from His own judgment. So when He says He will be saved... He means he'll be saved from the condemnation of the final judgment. He will be saved from damnation in eternal hell. He will be saved from torment under divine wrath. John 3 verse 16 says we are saved from perishing. John 5:24 says we are saved from the final judgment. John 3.18 says we will be saved from, from being judged. The word saved means to be delivered from destruction. It means to be rescued from ruin. He who enters through the door will be saved. There is nothing but wrath on the outside and there is nothing but grace on the inside. And there's not one drop of grace on the outside, and there's not one drop, drop of wrath on the inside. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. Jesus at the cross propitiated the righteous anger of God the Father toward you and me. That means he has satisfied the wrath of God by taking it to himself. He took that cup and drank the whole foul dregs dry. There's not one drop of wrath left for you or for me who are in Christ. He has placated the wrath of God toward us. 
That is why we have been saved. Every sin in the history of the world will be punished in full. Either it will be punished in hell or it will be punished in Christ. But every sin in the history of the world will be punished to the full extent of the law. Which is the wages of sin is death. That is why Jesus had to die upon the cross. That is why His blood shed in Gethsemane was not sufficient to save you. That is why His blood shed when He was circumcised on the eighth day was not sufficient to save you. It must be the shedding of blood unto death to save. So the first consequence is He'll be saved. I mean, we could just stop right there and go to lunch and be happy about it. But there's more. He says, we'll be saved and, and the word and makes an inseparable connection between all who are saved and. This is not another category. You can either be saved or you can go in and out. No, it's a package deal. If you are saved, you will go in and out and find pasture. Again, this we must understand, is not the community sheepfold in town. This is the countryside sheepfold out in the countryside where Jesus, as it were with this metaphor, has made a sheepfold by rolling rocks as a shepherd would, leading a, a vacant place in the rocks for the door, and He Himself would lay in the door and serve as the door of the sheep, but they go in at night, they come out in the morning. They go back in at night, they go out in the morning. And when they go out in the morning, He leads them out into green pastures and beside still waters, and it is a picture of the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Again, being saved is not like taking medicine in order to get well. Bad-tasting medicine, rather. It is the greatest experience that anyone could ever taste to be saved and to be satisfied. You will find pasture, rest, peace, goodness. Every... Out-and-out Christian is an in-and-out Christian. Every out-and-out Christian is an in-and-out Christian that goes in and out and finds the fullness of the abundant life that Christ alone can give. Have you experienced the goodness of the Lord in your life? Have you fed upon these green pastures? Have you been satisfied in Him? Do you know peace like a river that floods your soul? Do you know joy unspeakable and full of glory? Notice number six, the contrast made. In verse 10. He now sets at juxtaposition them and him. The thief and himself. 
He begins with a negative. He moves to the positive. It's black and white. Polarized opposites. The thief, referring, verse 10, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And every false spiritual leader is a thief. Every cult leader is a thief. Every leader of a false religion is a thief. The thief comes only to steal. He takes that which does not lawfully belong to him. He's not a giver, he's a taker. He's raking it off the top. The thief comes only to steal. He wants your money. He wants your backing. He is fleecing the flock. He is using you and abusing you. The thief comes only to steal. And ultimately, he steals from God. He steals the glory of God and takes it to himself. And he becomes the rock star of his own ministry. The thief comes only to steal and to kill. He kills the souls of men and destroy. He destroys true religion. He destroys the truth. He destroys the gospel. He destroys the way of salvation. There is nothing good to be said about the thief. Jesus now, in total contrast, says, I came that they, referring to the sheep, may have life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the life. He alone creates life. He alone gives life. He alone sustains life. It is the opposite, clearly implied, of what these thieves give, which is death. They kill and destroy. The Lord Jesus gives life as God intended life to be. This life is divine life. John 17.3 This is new life unlike anything they have ever known or ever experienced before. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He gives eternal life, which is life of the ages to come. He gives unending life. And please note what he says at the end of verse 10. This is just too good to be true. I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is not a frugal miser with this life. Just dispensing it with an eyedropper, one little drop at a time. He is lavishing this life upon us. The word abundantly is a Greek word that means very simply to give more than what is necessary. To give more than what you need. To give a surplus of something. To have plenty in reserve. 
to give in an overflowing measure. And so it is. He gives grace upon grace, Peter writes. He, he multiplies grace, Peter writes. The spiritual pasture into which He leads us will always contain more nourishment than you will ever be able to eat. He gives a greater grace when we need it, as we need it, for what we need. In Psalm 23, the psalmist writes, My cup overflows. In John 7, verse 37, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Verse 38, And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a book entitled All of Grace. And he speaks of the abundance of grace in our Christian life. And he uses the analogy of a fish swimming in the Thames River. And this little fish is timid and scared that there's not enough water in the Thames River to take care of his needs as though he could drink the entire Thames River dry. And Spurgeon says, drink on, little fish, drink on. There's more of the river than you will ever be able to pull in through your gills. And I want to say to you, there is more joy, there is more peace, there is more power, there is more grace that He lavishes upon you than you will ever begin to experience in a million, trillion, gazillion lifetimes. He has transplanted you, Psalm 1 says, beside streams of water. One little tree, and not just a stream, but streams, plural, flowing past this one tree. Far more water then this one tree setting down its roots can never be able to pull up through the root system and convert into sap to produce the leaves. There is, There are oceans and oceans and oceans of grace that far exceeds the most difficult times you will ever find in your life. He gives life abundantly to you. And so this is where we will conclude this Bible study. Surely for you to be at a Bible, at a Bible conference like this says something of your great interest in the things of God. I'm not so naive as to think that everyone here today has entered through the narrow gate. I don't think I could get this many preachers together our missionaries together and have the confidence that everyone has entered through the narrow gate. And if you've never entered through the narrow gate, these, this gate is swung wide open for you. And it is positioned right in front of you. All you have to do is come to Christ and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will enter through this gate. And for the rest of us who have 
no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what is awaiting you back at the house or at the apartment, and no matter what text or email or what phone call you have just received, what bit of news, I just want you to know that everything in the will of God, you have more than abundant resources to meet in Christ. And you can go forward in your Christian life triumphantly and victoriously because of the grace and the abundant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some people say, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. You're nuts. <laughs> it's the greatest thing in the world to be a Christian. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. He's come that we might have life and have it abundantly. May the Lord encourage your heart and meet you at your point of need with this. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this promise, this statement made by Christ. Thank you that he's drawn a straight line in the sand and separated himself from all the other charlatans. And he makes this distinctive offer to us. Lord, we take him at his word. We do enter through the narrow gate. And we have experienced this life. Father, we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.